Hi, it's Dr. Risa E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adara Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book coming in 2024 by HarperCollins. Pre-order now, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact, wherever you buy your books. Mental health is health. But I would challenge that 10 years ago, this was not the statement. People were still not quite sure how mental health is health. And now we know. And I think oral health is having a moment of that recognition and visibility. And hopefully not in 10 years, hopefully sooner, we will have that message loud and clear that oral health is health. And you cannot be healthy if you have poor oral health. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. In today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Natalia Chalmers. She is the Chief Dental Officer of CMS. That's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. In her role as CMS's Chief Dental Officer, Dr. Chalmers has been advancing the Biden-Harris's administration's commitment to care for the whole person, which is a key to reducing health disparities and advancing health equity. So listeners, as you might guess, we're going to be talking about dental health. Natalia is a board-certified pediatric dentist, an oral health policy expert, and a public health advocate. She brings more than 20 years of clinical research industry and regulatory experience to CMS. Previously, she served as the dental officer at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. When we get to the conversation, I'm speaking with Natalia about her role as a dentist, a pediatric dentist, the chief dental officer at CMS, and so much more. March 2007, Diamante Driver's life could have been spared if his infected tooth was simply removed, a procedure costing just $80. However, the Driver family faced obstacles with Medicaid, poverty, and access to resources, resulting in an easily preventable health problem turning deadly. In the end, Driver endured two surgeries and weeks of hospital care totaling about $250,000 in medical bills. Sadly, it was too late to save the boy, and he died in February of 2007. Now, that was from a news outlet that I just read, but I think it's prescient, and I wanted to use that word right there, prescient that you actually brought up Diamante Driver and 2007, because when I heard an NPR piece on this, I was devastated, because as an emergency medicine physician, many people come in because of toothache. Many people come in with dental infection. And to be clear, nobody wants to come to the emergency department. People don't want to be in pain. It's about access. And one of the things I learned early on is, you know, health insurance and dental insurance don't often travel together. And many people do not have dental insurance and access to dental care. And even when we see them in the emergency department and we say, follow up with the dentist or, you know, go to the dental clinic, it's easier said than done. They often have a very, very difficult time following up and actually being seen and therefore cared for in terms of health, pain, and ultimately being able to live thriving lives. Yeah. Well, I think when you and I first met, we talked about this shared experience that, you know, these patients show up at your door. What is it that can be done at that point where the pain is the primary symptom? And they, again, may have faced challenges if access to care. I want to share with you two examples that highlight how we are moving the policies and engagement with the states here to 
reduce the number of these emergency department visits. So one of them is we actually put together a national profile of how many beneficiaries in Medicaid adults go to the emergency department. And I think this is number one, raising the awareness. This is not a problem of the same magnitude and scale for every state. In some states, it could be 4% of Medicaid adults, but in others, it's very small, less than 1%. So it's really important to understand the scale and the impact. And then the second one is the best way to prevent people being at that point is to focus on prevention and understanding that dental disease is preventable, but it's only preventable before you have these multiple complications and the the big cavities and the abscess. So over the last two years, we work with 13 states to encourage primary care providers to increase oral health preventive services and application of fluoride varnish to very young children to put them on the right trajectory because the epidemiology of access to care tells us that young children see their pediatrician, but they may not see the dentist. And so it's really, you know, capturing these opportunities to put people on a health trajectory that will keep them away from the emergency department, because that's the end of the road in terms of there's no definitive care, it's only palliative care. They still have to go and find a dentist. And we continue to engage with stakeholders as we think about the next phase of the oral health work in Medicaid. And our work group is wonderful that will release a public report. But one of the areas where they said there is a huge need is actually to focus on the emergency department visit. So we'll see where their work lands. It's just a topic near and dear to my heart because these dollars can be spent better if they're going towards the prevention and early access to dental care services for adults and children. As a matter of fact, I have here Dr. Chalmers' passion for pediatric dentistry began early when she saw the devastating effects of poor oral health in her elderly patients and decided to devote her energy to understanding the disease process and the most efficient and effective prevention strategies. That's why I got my PhD in oral microbiology. I was going to cure dental caries. It didn't quite work that way, (laughs) but it opened my eyes on the complexity of the problem and how science has evolved, right? We didn't appreciate the hundreds of species that are involved in this process and all the prevention strategies we have today. So science is evolving and so is dental practice. We truly are in the best of times in some ways that children can live healthy and they can live caries free. And that is my dream that you know kids grow up and have and experience the best of oral health that they can. Are cavities inevitable? That's actually one of the misconceptions I hear in my patients. Very often they'll come and say, oh, well, you know, my grandparents had it, my parents had it, therefore there's nothing I can do. And caries is preventable, but before you have the disease, like with any disease, it's preventable before you have it. So we know what works, you know, we know the contributing factors. Diet is really critical. Access to preventive services, you know, toothbrush and toothpaste, very effective if they're used every day. And of course, preventive visits to uh, the dentist. These things together can result in children who grow cavity-free. And I enjoyed having those in clinic. 
they're just a testament of what's possible. So they're not inevitable, but there are certain populations who have much higher risk. And so the focus on prevention needs to be intentional. They have to have all the tools to help them succeed. And I would say for the parents to be empowered to understand how this process works in order to, again, help their children achieve the best oral health. Because for me, it's never about the teeth. For me, it's about children and their learning at school. I mean, you're not learning math if you're in pain or you have an abscess uh, or you can't sleep at night or you're not rested. And it's about, you know, adults living, again, their best life, being able to get a job. It's really way above just the pure dental diseases, if you will. I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis, dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre-order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books. In the emergency department, there's always, in terms of sort of, if I were to, this is not evidence-based, if I were to say when people come, they come when they can't sleep. They come when it's after work and they can't take it anymore. So I'm very humble regarding teeth and I'm very humble regarding back because a lot of people get back pain. But toothaches, it's just devastatingly painful. And it is such a throbbing pain that people cannot focus on anything else. So to your point, work, studying, just activities of daily living becomes difficult when you're in chronic pain. Yeah. And as we said, you know, inadequate oral health has far-reaching consequences that extend beyond the mouth. And profoundly, they could affect well-being, right? Sleep is one part of that. But nutrition, I mean, you can eat, again, if you're in aching. And overall, general health. We know a lot more today about the interconnectedness and the relationship between oral health and overall health. I would just say science has advanced dramatically. And that underscores the importance of maintaining a good oral health. And when it's compromised, again, there are cascades of issues that our beneficiaries have to deal with this. Bacteria can travel through the bloodstream. It can have far-reaching effects to the rest of the body. One not very well-known connection is the connection between poor oral health and maternal outcomes. I mean, one would say, what's the connection? But again, It's the inflammation that's carried through the mouth that can negatively impact the mom and the baby. And so women who have periodontal disease actually have much higher risk of preterm birth, low birth weight, all of these complications. And we know in the U.S. we have a long way to go. And I've seen incredible commitment to move the needle in the right direction with the work that's happening here at CMS. You mentioned prevention services. Are there any other preventive services that listeners can keep in mind? Anything specific? That's such a great question. I would say three things are really important. Doing everything you can at home, daily brushing with fluoridated toothpaste, drinking fluoridated water. The second one is making sure you have these annual visits with a dental provider. So if problems arise, they're caught early. And then the third one is just understanding 
the impact of poor oral health on your overall health. I think that's a big driver for some behavior change that I see in my patients is once they realize, oh, I can't really quite manage my chronic condition if I have this constant inflammation, they feel much more motivated because they understand the connection and they want to make a change. So do everything you can at home, fluoridated toothpaste and a good toothbrush, fluoridated water, visits to the dentist, and then understanding how it impacts all aspects of your life. Yeah. I think listeners are used to a bit of a mantra of mental health is health. And I think this concept of dental health is health is a bit newer. I want to ask a little bit about this concept of, you know, regular visits to the dentist because I think it's easier said than done. And I'm thinking about my emergency department population. I'm even thinking about people that have a job where they have health insurance, but they don't have dental insurance. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts that you can share. I would say even when you have coverage, access to dental care is not guaranteed. And we know this because We've looked at access to dental services in children who are under Medicaid. The coverage is not a problem. Every child has access to anything that's the medically necessary related to oral health. But we know in some states, the access is great. You know, close to 60% of children see a dentist in a year, which is great. But in other states, it's 20%. So in addition to coverage, there are challenges related to access. And I want to share with you, over the last two years, we engage with patients, providers, and stakeholders at the state level to understand these barriers. And I can't wait to share them with you. They're in final stages of clearance, but the voice of the patient is very telling. The things that we are hearing from them about the barriers to oral health care. And I think it's a great way for us to think about solutions, right? Because if they have to wait six months to see a provider, or if mom is working three jobs and has to take the kid to the dentist, she may recognize how important it is, but it becomes a very difficult decision. So doing everything we can to make sure children can receive preventive services in the school setting is one of the efforts here because they're already there. Mom can give informed consent, right? Really maximize that encounter. And you're absolutely right. Mental health is health. But I would challenge that 10 years ago, this was not the statement. People were still not quite sure how mental health is health. And now we know. And I think oral health is having a moment of that recognition and visibility. And hopefully not in 10 years, hopefully sooner we will have that message loud and clear that oral health is health. And you cannot be healthy if you have poor oral health. I cannot wait to read that report. And what I'll say is what you described is actually human-centered design. It's having the end user at the table in the design process. And that's exactly what, you know, my listeners who listen to these episodes, Reese is all about this human-centered design, this healthcare design. And the answer is yes, because why don't we ask the people affected? Why don't we ask the end user, what would work for you? Why do you not go to the dentist? What are your challenges? Um, One example I'll say regarding medication and medication compliance, there always used to be this like blame the patient, like whether they're not compliant with their medications, as opposed to actually looking at the situation. And there's a jelly bean experiment that one of my friends quotes about all these people that were blaming the victim, i.e. blaming patients about not taking a medicine that was, for example, prescribed three or four times a day. And then these blamers actually underwent an experiment where they had to take 
a certain number of jelly beans and the jelly beans were representing the medicine. And it turns out within 48 hours, all of them had like stopped complying and fell out of this quote experiment. So that's not specifically a dental situation. And I'm not talking about a medicine that's dental. However, it's this concept of, you know, why don't you ask the people what's going on? Why don't you ask them what will work for them? Why don't you ask mom why she hasn't, you know, brought her child to the dentist? And so I can't wait to see what this report shows. Oh, thank you. And it is absolutely human-centered design. It was led by our Office of Burden Reduction and Health Informatics, where this is their expertise. They go and engage with stakeholders and they bring that point of view. It's really great. I will share it with you when it's available. And we'll put the link in the podcast so people can read it. Fantastic. As you know, on the Visible Voices podcast, I ask my guests about their voice. So I'm interested, curious, when did you realize you had a voice? When did you start using your voice? And I, in this context, you know, as a subject matter expert for oral hygiene and health. Yeah, what a great question. That had me thinking quite profoundly, you know, when I discovered my voice. And I wonder, as a fellow healthcare provider, if you had the same experience where your voice, your advice changed the health trajectory of a patient. I find that very empowering and certainly have experienced that, especially with my pediatric patients, right? The moment you see the parent recognize that they have the power to change the oral health of their children or the child and adolescent, like, oh, I guess if I do a little bit more, you know, I could see better health. That is so empowering as a provider to be able to change that trajectory. No exact moment stands out as, you know, okay, this is the moment I recognize. It was very organic. And you talked about, you know, my training. And I would say every training made my voice stronger because I could add an additional piece to empowering patients or empowering policy decision makers of, with the evidence, with the data. It's been really great process to see as the voice grows. But that one, I would say, as a provider, is really very powerful. And, you know, one of the first things you notice when a person and you interact with them is their smile. So you, f- you quickly, you know, realize, I-, I quickly realize, this is before I was in dental school, that, oh, there is a direct correlation between, you know, the person's, you know, smile, confidence, and their socioeconomic status, right? And that, to me, was like, oh, What's that connection? How do we understand this better in terms of access? And then I talked about that transformative experience in 2007 that sort of geared me towards public service and my voice in public service. I cannot agree with you more as a clinician, and perhaps it's a little bit of Risa, like I'm a big observer and you are spot on. Like when someone smiles or someone doesn't smile and they keep their mouth closed and you see their teeth, you can actually learn a lot about their health and even their habits. And I'm talking about alcohol. I'm talking about nicotine. I'm talking about methamphetamine. I'm talking about sugar. I'm talking about even people that have gone for cosmetic dentistry. Like you can tell a lot about them based on their smile. I really love that point. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's very organic, but I've used that voice from kindergarten and elementary school rooms because, you know, when my kids were in school, I went there and gave them oral health. February is the National Oral Health Month, so they had special sessions. I love that. Meaning the voice can be used in many levels. So from the kindergarten classrooms to then national and international conferences to state level interactions with 
dentists and non-dental providers. I would say, actually, that's been one of the most rewarding places to use my voice is to work with my medical colleagues and find a common ground and move the policy forward. And, you know, I testified at the House and Senate before I was at CMS in Maryland. So the voice is one way that I discovered I could advance oral health. Uh, and I tried to use it wisely and seek every opportunity. And what keeps you up at night? Many things, but I would say one thing that stands out is today, many people in the U.S. have fantastic access to oral health. They can receive the world-class care. You know, they call their dentist, there is an appointment, they get in right away. There's no issues with access to care. But for others, we know that accessing dental care remains a challenge. And then you have this combined issue of the disparities that exist in the disease prevalence. And then you also have the disparities that exist in access to care. And so the combination of these two becomes really challenging. Is there a specific example that you can walk listeners through so they understand exactly what you're talking about with the access and the disease? Sure. If we think about edentulism, and this is the end of the road, right? Edentulism is another way of saying you have no teeth. All the teeth are gone and you only have your gums. And then you may have dentures, but edentulism is the status where people don't have teeth. Overall, nationally, that's about 70% of people 65 and older. The good news is that number has been coming down over the last 10 years. So more people are keeping their teeth, which is great. I would say the opportunity and the challenge is that when you look at this very key oral health indicator by race and ethnicity, African-American people over 65, it's, that is about 30% are missing all of their teeth. So you can then connect, I mean, not having any teeth, eating healthy foods becomes a challenge. So nutrition, right? Managing all of these chronic conditions becomes more difficult. So that's just one example, but this is true in prevalence of cavities and untreated disease in children and untreated disease in adults. So we have a long way to go. That example is excellent and I think really illustrative for our listeners because we think about our childhood, we think about perhaps going to the orthodontist and getting braces or, you know, having those fluoride treatments or worrying if you're going to have cavities. But moving ahead into adulthood, I think we don't always think about care for our teeth and care for our oral hygiene in the same way. And so, again, just bold facing that I think oral health is a part of health. This leads me to my question about your legacy. What is your legacy? I hope in the future we would have a place and access to care where children don't die of oral health complications. That would be phenomenal. And not only that, you know, that's a bit grim, right? That we are looking for that as an outcome, but that they grow healthy. My dream is that every child under six has zero cavities. I mean, that would be great because that means their trajectory of life looks different, right? So that's the dream. And I hope we can work with the states to put, you know, programs and operations in place where every child has access to preventive services. And we work together with all of our federal colleagues to achieve that. There are also many events that are charity driven to, you know, open the doors for dental care. 
hopefully one day we won't need this because everybody will have access to some sort of dental coverage and will be able to get the care they need. This is a process. Obviously, it's not a one-person effort, but to be part of those solutions, it would be great. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Dr. Natalia Chalmers for joining me in conversation. It was amazing to be with such subject matter expertise and leadership when it comes to oral health and oral health care. So three take-home points, audience. Number one, oral health is health. And the more we can think about this in a comprehensive way, the better overall we will be as children, adults, elders, and a society. Number two, human-centered design. I was delighted when Natalia said that CMS is using human-centered design to try to find understanding, education, and solutions. So at the center of CMS's human-centered design process is a participatory design methodology. They work directly with clinicians, patients, third-party vendors, federal partners, and CMS employees to collaboratively understand the context of their work and engagement with CMS, as well as the solutions they're creating to support them. And finally, what exactly does this Barriers to Oral Healthcare illustration show? Well, I'll give you three big ones that hit me as an emergency physician. Number one, emergency pain. There is a lack of timely dental care, so patients can end up in the emergency department. In fact, they often do for their dental-related pain. As you may understand, trips to the emergency department can be costly, and actually, they don't solve the root, get it, root, of the problem. Next, delays in care. Patients report up to six months or more to be able to see a dental care provider. There are more patients than available providers. Finally, legislation. At the state level, they can allocate more funding to expand oral health care benefits. And audience, from my perspective, we need to expand access and availability of timely, preventative, accessible dental health care. That's all I have for you this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano DePorto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued. <laughs>